Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, just a photographer who's been at it for over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week I share a devotional inspired by the name of one of the cross images and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of scripture. The cross image accompanying this devotional is the Revelation, which is an image from the early days of capturing the cross. It is hard to tell because I'm shooting into the sun and the foreground is in deep shadow and silhouette. But I can tell because I know what to look for. I was there when I shot it. But if you look closely, there is grass around the cross. And if you see grass around the cross in one of my cross images, then you know that it was shot before they broke ground on the school campus. The sky is full of dramatic clouds, which, because of the nature of the setting sun that night, are all illuminated with a majestic golden hue. The sun is revealing itself in the lower left-hand side of the image. The glowing golden shaft of light is horizontal in shape with the left hand of the shaft nearest the left side of the image and then begins to get thinner as it goes to the right to the point of making a point like the tip of a spear or a knife or an arrow tip stopping right before the left hand side of the cross meaning the shaft appears to be pointing to the cross simply amazing now this is radio so you really need to see this image to understand how cool the pointing shaft is breaking through those dramatic clouds and the majestic golden hue to really understand and appreciate what I'm trying to describe. And why the reason for the name, the Revelation? Well, the first scripture that comes to mind is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. And of course, Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There's a lot to unpack in what Jesus said there, but I think a lot of it can be summed up in Romans 1, 16 to 21. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, 
for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but it became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That was the end of that excerpt from Romans one sixteen to 21. And I read it because I want you to realize when someone comes at you negatively because of your faith to criticize you, Keep in mind, God has revealed himself to them, but they chose to allow their hearts to go dark. Instead of reacting from a position of anger or some kind of righteous justice you feel you are owed, no, we should have sympathy and pray for them, knowing that the reason for their angst against us is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they are avoiding. Two other aspects of these verses jump out to me. One that touches on or adds to Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, when it said, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Hmm. It applies that from the infinite knowledge about what God and who God is, only a tiny slice has been revealed or can be comprehended by us humans. It is kind of like a visual pie chart of the entire spectrum of light, usually illustrated in a semicircle. On the left-hand side, there are huge sections of the semicircle carved out for slices like gamma, another slice for alpha, and then the frequency we refer to as x-ray. And then just next to that, the tiny slice of infrared and then a tinier and thin slice of the spectrum we call visual light. It was not until a hundred years ago that we used science and devices to understand that what we felt was everything to observe our universe was actually the smallest, our eyes, our vision. And that does not even bring up dark matter. The point is that What God has allowed us to know about him is enough to radically change the way we look at our world and affects the way we live our lives. Manifesting in us, it means it becomes a part of our spiritual, and I contend even our physical makeup, changing the trajectory of how we live out our lives. The other aspect is when the verse said, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. This verse is a foundational part of my mission as a ministry and as an inspirational artist. If a picture says a thousand words, then my images, I am saying, look at the beauty of what God has created. Think about the one who created such beauty. In today's devotion, we are contemplating what you would be willing to sacrifice 
and for who? Specifically, who might you be willing to die for? Those people you know deep down that in a split second, if the situation arose, you'd be willing to give up your life in order for that person to live. Hmm. Ponder that for a moment. Now, the Bible is replete with examples of sacrifice. One of the first is the hundreds of years Noah sacrificed building the ark to save his wife and three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives, let alone to save every species on earth, but that was a sacrifice of time, or actually time and materials. It was a huge, huge ship. Then there is the sacrifice of the patriarch of the Hebrew people, and also the Jewish and Christian faiths. Abraham was a hundred years old after 25 years of waiting when he saw God's promise to bless Abraham with a son be fulfilled. Imagine his surprise when God asked him to sacrifice that same son. We read in Genesis 22, 2-3, he said, Take your son and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Without question, Abraham got up to do precisely what the Lord had called upon him to do. Once Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, with his knife up in the upper trajectory, about to thrust the knife down into his only son, an angel called out for him to stop. God then provided a ram in the bushes for him to sacrifice instead of his son. Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son, but he was willing to. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his blessing to be obedient to the one who blessed him in the first place. He was willing to give up on all his dreams and plans and hopes that he had for his son in the future because he had faith that there was nothing he could give up for God that God could not restore. Remember Moses, who was raised in the lap of luxury inside the very house of Pharaoh of Egypt. And yet, upon learning of his Hebrew heritage, began to see his world through a different perspective or a different prism. One aspect that had changed over 400 years since Joseph was the second in command of Egypt was that the Hebrews had become slaves to the Egyptians. And one day, in the heat of the moment, Moses fought with and caused the death of an Egyptian taskmaster who was beating a Hebrew slave. In that moment, Moses sacrificed his freedom and a life of luxury and sped out into the farthest regions of the wilderness as a fugitive. He lived as a fugitive shepherd for the next 40 years. It may not have been luxurious, but it sounds like it was a simple life of peace. When God came to Moses in the burning bush, asking him to go back to Egypt and to allow God to use him to free the Hebrew people, Moses initially refused. You would think Moses would want to help his people, but no. Moses continued to come up with as many excuses as he could think of. And God seemed to knock down every excuse. 
And yet, Moses continued to refuse God's request. Who knows exactly what the real reason that Moses hesitated? Maybe he wanted to live out his days in the peace and quiet of a shepherd lifestyle. Maybe he had an intuition of how rough freeing and then leading the Hebrew people would be. Obviously, God was patient, but was persistent until Moses eventually sacrificed his excuses for obedience to God's calling. As we learn in the story of King Saul and David, God tells us that the obedience is greater than sacrifice. In the story of Moses going back to Egypt, he did both. He sacrificed his life of peace for the turmoil of leading the contentious Hebrew people. Then there is the donkey that sacrificed its peace of mind and was willing to endure physical and emotional abuse to protect the human who was riding on him, but then began impressing him. It had to do with the fascinating story of King Balak of Midian and his failed attempt to curse the Jewish people through a powerful sorcerer named Balaam. However, after accepting the mercenary assignment, God told Balaam in his dreams not to curse the Jewish people. He informed Balak to not curse the Hebrews, but after several back and forth, Balak, and maybe his money, proved persistent and persuasive. Finally, Balaam left towards the Hebrews. He woke early in the morning and saddled his donkey and went off with Balak's emissaries. But God was angry at Balaam for going and sent a sword-wielding angel to block his way. The donkey saw the angel on the road with his sword drawn, so he turned aside into a field. Balaam beat the donkey to get it back on the road. Then the angel stood in the path of the vineyards with a wall on both sides. The donkey saw the angel, so she pressed against the wall to squeeze past the angel, crushing Balaam's leg, and Balaam beat her again. Then the angel stood in a narrow place so there was no room to turn left or right. The donkey saw the angel and it crouched down under Balaam in fear. Balaam felt humiliated by the donkey's disobedience so he angrily beat her a third time. The seemingly stubborn donkey quit moving forward because she could see the, the danger that Balaam couldn't. She was willing to sacrifice her well-being to do the right thing not just once after two previous beatings. She had no idea of the role she played in God's plan, but was willing to sacrifice her master's approval and acceptance to save his life. The verses record how, after being thoroughly humiliated by his tonky donkey, Balaam, the non-Jewish sorcerer and prophet commissioned by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the Jews, found it incapable of cursing them. Instead, he bestowed on the Jews four tremendous blessings, some of which are recited in Jewish prayers today, and one of them foretells the Messianic redemption. A side lesson to learn here is that when someone curses you in one of many ways, God can turn it into a blessing. Then there is a woman of the Bible named Ruth who sacrificed her future for the sake of loyalty. After Ruth lived through the death of her husband and father-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law pleaded with her to go back to her homeland, 
Her mother-in-law, Naomi, reasoned that Ruth would have a better chance of finding a husband if she left, offering a better guarantee of safety and protection. Ruth's sister-in-law went home, but Ruth decided to stay with Naomi. Ruth, in chapter 1, verse 16, said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your Lord my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to stay with her, she said no more. Now, Ruth sacrificed the safety of her future back in the home, homeland she grew up in to stay by Naomi's side in a foreign land. She was willing to sacrifice the hope of a future relationship with a husband to honor the relationship she had with her previous husband and with Naomi. Eventually, Ruth would marry Naomi's family member, Boaz, and bear his child, who would then be in the lineage of Jesus. In the end, Ruth received everything she was willing to sacrifice. And of course, we can't forget the story of Gideon in Judges 6-8, through which is a particularly good example of how faith and sacrifice are related to one another. It is worth remembering that Gideon lived in an idolatrous town, and he was a low-status member of his clan. Sure, the enemies of Israel were making things very hard for the Israelites, even to the point of desolation, but rallying the Israelites to renounce their devotion to Canaanite deans and to fight their enemies could have cost Gideon everything, the wealth he did have and his standing in the community and even his life. I like the honesty and how God responds when he is greeted by God's messenger. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. Now It is easy to look down on Gideon for how he responded to the angel, but think about the situation from his perspective. He grew up hearing stories about God's mighty deeds and about God's care for the people of Israel. But his lived experience showed little evidence of God's involvement or his power recently. War and starvation killed Israelites by the thousands. People in his own family had died at the hands of the Midianites. And now he is supposed to put his own neck on the line in order to defy Israel's enemies and rid the land of idolatry? Perhaps this is why God is so patient with Gideon. Over and over again, God allows Gideon to test him. On one occasion, God even provides Gideon with encouragement before he expresses his fear. God called Gideon to participate in his work, and God knew that Gideon would not take the risk of doing so unless he was assured that God would be with him. And so he did. He placed his life in danger to obey God's calling. There's another story, a story of Rahab, 
a prostitute living in the city of Jericho who risked her life to save the life of two Hebrew spies who were in her city. She, on her own, like Abraham, leaving the land of Ur, had developed a relationship with God and had faith that God's people would be victorious over the city-state of Jericho. And it is interesting to me how the ruling religious leaders of the day criticized Jesus for fraternizing with prostitutes and sinners. It seems God has a plan for every one of us if we're open to it and obedient to obey it and develop a relationship with God. And getting back to King David, we cannot disregard the lesson of the preordained David. During a time when things had really gone bad, when Saul, King Saul, was trying to chase down David through multiple wildernesses in order to kill him. And at one point, David had the perfect opportunity to assassinate King Saul in his sleep. Yet, David sacrificed the ability to stop someone who was dedicated to killing him in order to do the moral and ethical right thing in the eyes of God and man. Then there is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Some might miss the sacrifice she made. In some sense, I did. I mean, yes, I know it was a scandal to be an unwed mother in that culture. Less than one generation ago in this country, it was as well. Mary was a young woman ready to get married to Joseph. Her life was all planned out until she was greeted by an angel to inform her that she would birth the Messiah of her people that the people had long awaited for. Mary wasn't sure how it happened, but she had to have known that this birth would change everything. She was willing to sacrifice her plans, convenience, and even her reputation. Just imagine what others thought of her for becoming pregnant before she was married to Joseph. Even Joseph was going to call off their marriage until an angel came to Joseph in a dream. Now the reason I said I almost missed or never perceived the totality of Mary's sacrifice was because I saw a movie last Christmas season that provided a new paradigm. In the contemporary British movie about Mary, there's a scene where the woman in the town... Noticing her pregnant form, picked up stones and began the process of stoning her. Other people started picking up stones to follow, and Mary's life was at risk. If it had not been for her mother whisking her away, she could have been killed by the town mob that day. Fortunately, that did not happen, and God used Mary's willingness to sacrifice her life to bring salvation to the world. Now, the theme of this devotion has been sacrifice as an essential element of discipleship. All of these examples I spoke of today, and many, many more stories of sacrifice, even if they were all combined and then doubled or even squared or to the tenth power or to the hundredth power, would never, ever come nowhere near the sacrifice Jesus allowed on the cross. Jesus is quite clear that we have to give up our lives if we are going to find the life that he has for us. Mark eight thirty-five. Jesus didn't 
just come up with an idea off the top of his head. It is interwoven into the fabric of the ancient Hebrew faith and into the fabric of the New Testament itself. Only recently have I come to understand that there is, in the spiritual experience of most people, a prerequisite to sacrifice. People will not make the sacrifices that they need to to make in order to follow Jesus if, like Gideon did at first, they do not believe that God is at work in their world or in their daily lives. The connection between our confidence that God is at work and our willingness to sacrifice for him in our daily lives may not be immediately apparent, but I think that it will become so as we reflect on Scripture and on our own experience in prayer and meditation. Why should we follow Jesus to the cross? We need to know the answer, not just for ourselves, but for those family and friends that will ask, Why are you a Christian? Don't we have enough troubles already? Why should we lay down our lives for God and our fellow human beings? Human beings that feel good to criticize us. Will our sacrifice accomplish anything? When we work through questions like these, we are really asking whether we really trust God. Each of us must confront the hard truth that Christians suffer persecution, get injured in car crashes, die of cancer, experience divorce, lose children way too soon, starve, or are the victims of injustice or martyrdom. At the same time, like Job did, we must find a way to affirm that God is good, that God is active in the world and in our daily lives, and that God keeps his promises. Without it, then our faith will not result in the kind of sacrifice that Jesus requires of us. Human nature will lead us to conclude that the pain isn't worth the gain. If, however, we can understand our journey in light of God's goodness and love, and if we are living out his destiny of us and for us and fulfilling his will in our life, we will be more likely to make the sacrifice required of us. It brings to mind a quote by E. Stanley Jones, which says, At the cross, God wrapped his heart in flesh and blood and let it be nailed to the cross for our redemption. Now, if you are a Christian, have you been living in this sacrificial perspective? If not, I suggest you meditate on the paradigm, on the message that is revealed to us by what happened on the cross. Because that message removes anxiety and doubt and provides the faith that we need to endure every trial and every sacrifice to be able to sacrifice whatever for the kingdom of God, knowing that the truth of the gospel is that the worst case result of any situation is the best case outcome for us, God's children. Go and live in that perspective today. If you have not yet accepted the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you, then I suggest you really contemplate what he did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible. Watch movies like the British version of the movie Mary, or even the current series The Chosen. 
contemplate on the crucifixion accounts and consider your life in light of that sacrifice. My hope is that you will ask God to refine your soul and to heal your heart. So ask Jesus to walk with you and fill you with his unconditional and love and joy today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program heard every week here on Life Radio. If you like to view the image discussed in this devotional's image, Revelation, along with my other Verspirations, then check out Verspiration, singular, or Rob Holt Inspires on Instagram. And support for What the Cross Means to Me comes from the generous donations of people like you. To help this ministry share the gospel through imagery, please log on to RobbieHolt.com and make a donation. That is R-O-B-B-Y-H-O-L-T.com. <laughs>